My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And today I'm coming at you live from the BNV studio. I'm not live. So jealous. <laughs> but I'm at the BNV studio with Mark in Halifax. I'm using a real microphone, not a microphone that Mark bought for us taped to a wine bottle, which is really nice. Which is a huge <laughs> slight on me, okay? Listen, okay. <laughs> the amount of engineering it takes to duct tape a microphone to an empty wine bottle should be respected. <laughs> it, you know, I still have mine. Mine traveled with me from Lunenburg back to Halifax. So This should be like, I love when podcasts make like little enamel pins or something. Like those are like my favorite kinds of merch. A wine yeah. bottle and with a mic like duct tape to it. A hundred percent. Is is one of our staples now, thanks to yep. uh, 2020. <laughs> yeah. The whole I year. <laughs> the whole year's been a rough one, though. The whole, oh, one yeah. des- the whole year deserves a drink already, and it's only six months through. Yeah. Not even. I love it because every year for the past probably five years has been, ever since the Trump election, has been like, yeah. wow, this year was terrible. Next year, hopefully it gets better. But every year is just like really like piling up on top of each other. (laughs) Not just, I mean, like Minute Women, Grace and Linnea, we are thriving as individuals (laughs) on a podcast. (laughs) But uh, the rest of the world. But everything else is just on fire. (laughs) Yep. Which is great. Love that for us. (laughs) Anyways, do you want to hop into the minute? Anyways. Yeah, I want to know what are we learning about today? What fun Canadian facts do I get to hear today and make fun of and not understand? <laughs> so this week we're going to do the Andrew Minarski Heritage Minute. I have no idea who that is. Perfect. I think this one would be better without you knowing fully what it is going into it. Okay. Because it's like a okay. story Andrew that unravels in, in an interesting Minarski. way. Yeah. Okay. it's So it's kind of a newer one. It was like one of those 2005 ones that came mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, it was, it'll be better if we just kind of dive into it. Of course, if any listeners want to go watch it, there will be a link to it in the bio of the episode, or you can probably just Google it up and find the Andrew, Andrew Minarski. Minarski. Is yeah. Minarski phonetically spelled? Like, does it... Because uh, to me, that yeah. sounds like it could have like a silent G in it. I don't know. <laughs> no Gs. Uh, it is spelled with a Y, though, in the... Minarski. M Y N A R. Oh, not where I thought the Y was. Yeah. Okay, no. It's Polish. It's Polish. It's Polish. Spoiler alert for the episode. It's Polish. I don't think we've done a Polish one yet. I don't think we have either. Okay, so we're All right, uh, so tell me, yeah, tell me about this Polish man. Yeah, let's get into it. So, Andrew Charles Minarski was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba on the 14th of October, 1916. So, he okay. to his close friends and family, he was known as Andy. So, you know what? We're going to call him Andy, too. We're his close friends we're now. We're his close friends slash family. <laughs> Andy it is. Andy it is. <laughs> So he was a first-generation Canadian, with his Mm -hmm. parents both being recent immigrants from Poland. He was the oldest boy in the family, and it was a big family. He had three sisters and two brothers. Okay. 
And so he grows up in North End, Winnipeg, and he had a fairly typical childhood. He attended King Edward and Isaac Newton Elementary Schools, which... Wow, big names, <laughs> big shoes, big shoes to fill. Yeah, I love that, like, there's an elementary school in Winnipeg named after Isaac Newton. It's just like... Right? Let's just pull up, like, a name out of a hat of, like, oh. cool guys. <laughs> Isaac Newton it is. Cool white guys. <laughs> That'd be like us having like a Benjamin Franklin elementary school. It's just like Yeah, in like Dartmouth. <laughs> yeah. Like, just like Why? Uh, it's not like personal ties, but I mean who doesn't want to be Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't think that guy is cool? <laughs> who doesn't? Like the the kites and stuff? Kids love you know, kites. Electricity? <laughs> <laughs> he had a sweet haircut. <laughs> yeah, he did. Sure had that going for him. Yeah, and we all want to make money. Hundred dollar bills. Like, that's like the quarantine cut now. Benjamin Franklin's haircut. <laughs> yeah. That's what we've also come to. Yeah, so he's like attending schools, um, but tragedy strikes the Minarski family when Andy of is pretty course young. It does. Um when he was of sixteen, his father passed away. So I don't know how he right. died. But as the oldest son, that means Andy had to take on the burden of being the breadwinner for the family. But, you know, doing the Minute Women podcast, when you say tragedy strikes, like, I assume the worst. Like, I assume Andy <laughs> has lost a leg and then his entire family has been murdered. So just just that the dad died. I mean, like, at this point in doing these podcasts with you, that's really not. And they had, like, a solid 16 years yeah. together. You know, That's like... tragedy I can deal with. <laughs> I... Uh, I wholeheartedly love that that's how this is for you. Like, <laughs> you see the past through the opposite of rose-tinted glasses. Like, everything is horrible. <laughs> so, yeah. The uh, past is a terrible place. <laughs> it's a terrible place. Don't time travel. Um, terrible things happen. So, Andy's got to go start lay missing himself. He's like, man, it's like, I got to start bringing in money for the family. So he takes on an after-school job as a chamois cutter for a furrier, um, which is like... A furrier. Cutting leather for like a leather shop, essentially. Um, All right. Not a job you would have today, probably. Yeah, Yeah, kind of. It seems like it's like a specific kind of leather, like more like suede, essentially. Okay. I guess it would be used more in like fashion than in like tools, I guess. Right. Okay. So this income was the main source of income for the family, and it supplemented Andy's mother. So he's not only going to school, like he's still in school, but he's now also supporting the family. Meanwhile... With uh, a bunch of younger siblings. With a bunch of younger siblings. He has like an older sister, but he is the oldest boy, which... So... It's the past, so that's the way it works. (laughs) It's the past. She's at home knitting. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) It's, uh, so he's still going to school. He's attending St. John's Technical School, and he graduates. So I always I'll think that's great. It's like you managed to like stay in school despite all of that. Look at this. He's yeah. overcome all this adversity already. What are you talking about? <laughs> this isn't a tragedy. It pushed him to be a better man. It gets worse. Uh, okay. <laughs> of course it does. Oh, just you wait. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so... This demand to grow up very quickly, like, you know, you have to mm-hmm. go from being like a boy to a man very quickly, impacts him throughout the rest of his life. And he was always characterized as being very strong willed, very protective and independent. Oh, three yeah. traits I really adore in a man. Is he vulnerable too? Because you know how I love vulnerability. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
there's definitely some bromance in this one. So oh, I'm excited. We'll, we'll get there. So this kind of like attitude he has towards life also impacted his decision to not immediately enlist when World War II broke out in 1939. Mm, interesting decision. Interesting decision. Um, so as when a the war breaks out, protective man. This as, is interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back for a second. Maybe okay. I don't want to enlist right away. Um, okay. Because when the war breaks out, it's at the tail end of the Great Depression. Like, work isn't hard to find. Um, and yeah. in addition to that, a bunch of young men are now able to be like, hey, I'm going to enlist with all my friends. And it's going to be patriotic right. and awesome and cool. And we're all going to get to hang out and make money while we're doing it. This is like and the best thing in ever. addition, it's it's World War II. World War One has happened, and people are aware now what war is. You know, it's not yeah I, I this think... exciting once in a lifetime opportunity. I feel like by the time World War Two happened, if you were alive for World War One, like if you kind of yeah grew up knowing about World War One, you were a bit more hesitant maybe to enlist right away. Yeah, that definitely could have influenced Andy as well. Like, yeah. there's definitely still that wave of like patriotic fervor, and it's of like course. I want to enlist and go on an adventure, but. I don't yeah. think that was as prevalent. So there's this like sense of patriotism and the security. And Andrew, he feels all of these things, but he doesn't want to just leave his family. So he wants to enlist, but he's like, I can't just abandon my family. Because yeah, some on of his siblings would still be pretty young probably at this point. Yeah, I don't know what their spread is, but like if you're the breadwinner for the family, even just your mom, like, yeah, what's you she going to do? So rather than just signing up for the military immediately, he decides to join the militia. So the militia would give him an opportunity to train at home, but not partake in the war, I guess. Right. Okay. All right. So that so he still gets to feel his patriotism, just uh, just yeah. not leaving the family yet. Exactly. So he joins the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, and yeah, so he can do his basic training in Winnipeg instead of getting shipped off. Okay. Um, but ultimately, his goal is to serve, and the war escalates very quickly. Germany had taken France within the first year of the war, and it would be four years before Allied troops set foot in France again. So the Royal Canadian Air Force was completely caught off guard by the escalation of war and how important Air Force was going to be in this kind of new age of war. Um, yeah. So... When the Nazi war machine is unveiled, the Allies were like, oh, gosh, we, we need to build an air force right now. And so that becomes... <laughs> Today, yesterday, we yeah, needed like, an air we force. Need to, <laughs> we needed an air force yesterday. Uh, so they're really uh, selling air force to a lot of young men. Um, and mm -hmm. they would basically take anybody. So Andy joins the Royal Canadian Air Force. Which is absolutely horrifying to me the fact that they're just like yeah you random guy you're gonna get in a plane and yeah it's that's, like that's terrifying yeah basically as long as you can as long as you can like see and hear and you don't have any immediate health problems we will not colorblind that's a big one like these people had never flown before not yeah. not even like piloted like they'd never been in oh planes yeah they before. would have never been in a plane before yeah so we're gonna like not only are we gonna put you in a plane we're gonna put you in a plane strapped to bombs <laughs> it's gonna be <laughs> by <great>. yourself <laughs> 
So this likely influenced his decision to join the Air Force. Also, like, the Air Force is dominating the media during this phase of the war because the Battle of Britain is, oh, like, yeah, the, the RCAF. Well, and the Royal Canadian Air Force was, like, a propaganda machine. It was Ooh, yeah. so glamorized. Oh, yeah. Um, and so romanticized to exactly. be a to be a fighter pilot. Yeah, and, like, especially because Battle of Britain is the Nazis attacking Britain via aircraft mm-hmm. and like, yeah, you have like the air raids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's Britain's most immediate participation in the war right now. So okay. as a Canadian, that would be the one that you see the most and you're like, Oh yeah. wow. If I want to serve air force is going to be the quickest way I get to serve. Like, yeah. Rather than being a foot soldier where because you have to Because like, your wait. safety is irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, it's not about will I come home. It's like, can I leave, please? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So all of this would have been extremely exciting for a young man like Andy. And just before his 25th birthday, Andy transferred out of the militia and joins the RCAF as an air crewman. Right. Okay. So when you join the Air Force, you first have to go to initial training school. And so Andy was sent to Edmonton. Well, thank God for that. At least <laughs> at least he's going to do that. Yeah, they're not going to just put you up in the plane right away. Uh, he did have to go to school first. So he That's goes good. to the number three Manning Depot, which is in Edmonton. And there he was mm-hmm. given a very broad education in navigation, aeronautics, Morse code, and geography. So it's like... What do you need to know when you go up in a plane? 101. <laughs> um, okay, Morse code is a year-long course in the Marine Institute right now. Yeah. And you know what? You need some basic Morse code. <laughs> SOS. Yes, exactly. So after you finished initial training school, just like all members of the RCAF, you get to like specialize. So the Initially, Canada doesn't have a bomber, but the eventual bomber that they will build and Andy will fly with his crews are called Lancaster bombers. They're a four-engine plane, and they require a seven-man crew to operate. So there's like seven specialties that you could pick from, essentially. Interesting. What are these specialties? Um, Well, one of them is radio operator. So that's the one you need to know Morse code for. (laughs) That's important. And that's the one Andy wants. So Andy goes to the number two wireless school in Calgary, but he has a lot of trouble learning Morse code. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. So he's just like, I'm not good at this, guys. They're like, I don't know if you could be a radio operator uh, if you can't use Morse code. So yes. Morse code is crazy. I just know from being around like boats and stuff, if you have to do the Morse code, like the courses, yeah. they sit you in, one of the tests is they sit you in a completely dark room and someone sits on the other side of the room and flashes a flashlight at you in Morse code. Oh, uh, like you have in your to, eyes? Like they're sitting across and so all you see is the flashlight and oh, then you okay. have to tell them what the Morse code was, like through the flashlight. That's tough. I Like, I mean good i i want people to be good at morse code because that's what sos but sos i think i've explained this on this podcast yeah, that sos doesn't episodes. actually mean anything it's just that it's like dash dash dot yeah dash, oh our marconi dash. episode that was the yeah one. so it yeah. just goes over and over and over again so mm-hmm. it's it's that's why it's the easiest distress signal right right um because you can't really mess it up like <laughs> but the rest of morse code is so difficult apparently andy could mess it up 
because yeah. he had he had to be transferred out. He wasn't allowed to be a radio oh, operator. Andy. So instead, he was reassigned to the number three bomb and gunnery school. So he's going to learn how to use the guns instead of the radio. That does not sound promising for me. Like if I especially like I just think like as a mother or like a wife, like I would not want my child or my husband going to the bomb and gunnery school. Like that just sounds awful. I'm going to bomb bomb and gunnery 101. Yeah. No. What did you learn today? How to explode. <laughs> but training here was extremely difficult. One of their training things they needed to do, similar to like the Morse code thing you're explaining, uh, they have to be blindfolded and take apart and rebuild their gun. Because oh, okay. like the raids that they do are largely at night. So most of the you work that they're going to, do to be doing yeah, is going to yeah. be in the dark. Without vision. Yeah. But... Um, unlike radio operating, Andy does very well. He graduates. Uh, Good for him. Yeah, just before Christmas in 1941, and he is now an air gunner. Mm. Exciting. The training school and this type of work formed really deep camaraderie among the men, so you're really yeah. dependent upon the rest of your crew to make sure that you know, you're know you safe and you fulfill your mission. Um, yeah. Andy was promoted to a temporary sergeant in Halifax with his fellow graduates. Oh. Yeah, so they're hanging out in Halifax. I'm in Halifax. That's where you Mark's are. Mark's in Halifax. <laughs> Andy was here. Andy was here. <laughs> so while he's in Halifax, he goes through like a series of transfers. I think it's mostly just trying to figure out like when's the best time to send these, this crew or this graduating class. Uh, overseas um, yeah. but eventually he winds up with flying officer Art de Brienne who is a pilot for one of the planes so the the way it worked okay. I think is like you have the pilot at the top and then they have their crews and so right. and Andy is part of that crew yeah exactly um, so he joins as the mid upper gunner so Lancasters have two gunners they have one at the rear turret and one at the the mid upper so he's like up on top of the plane operating that gun Okay. Um, and he joins the number 419 Moose Squadron. <laughs> the Moose Squadron. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So the name Moose, uh, which is used as the squadron's emblem and motto, came from the nickname of the first commanding officer of the squadron, whose nickname was Moose. So like oh. in his memory, they named like the whole squadron after him. But they're now known as Moose Men. And it's still uh, a squadron. Like, you could still be a moose man today. <laughs> you could still be a moose man. I don't know if I'd want to be. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's for me. Um, <laughs> the, it's funny because all of the pictures that, like, the squadron takes, like, it's them with, a, like, a, a hunting trophy moose head. Like, the one you would hang on a wall. They're like... I imagine them just doing the, like, moose ears, like, putting their hands <laughs> up by their head. Yeah, like in uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's like, hee-haw. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, imagine that, but, like, a whole squadron of dudes uh, in pilot's uniforms. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so this is, like... oddly attractive <laughs> and unattractive at the same time. So close. <laughs> So, like, this is Andy's crew, and they flew missions out of England starting in November of 1942. So their missions were largely 
flying night offensives over Germany, uh, which they would do for the next 18 months. So from November of 1942 for the next 18 months there. Wow. Because like, I think what we remember partly is like Nazis bombing London. But like yeah. British people bomb Berlin and Frankfurt and like all of these civilian locations as well. Um, yeah. So that's what he's doing right now. Um, so the missions uh, and the work in general were incredibly dangerous from January of 1943 to March of 1944. The 419 squadron was involved in over 200 sorties involving 2,400 crewmen operating, and they lost 59 aircraft. So that's a rate of one wow. in every 40 aircraft is going to yeah. go down. Um, that's a big blow. Yeah, aircraft has like the worst survival rate, if I remember correctly, of like Navy, yeah. military, whatever. 415 men were either killed or taken as prisoners of war during those 15 months. And that's an average of four crews a month. So Man. once a month, four of your crews. Now, do they are know that? Gone. Do the other crews, though, know that? Or is that being like shielded from them? No, I think they're pretty aware of the circumstances. Like, have you ever read Catch 22? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that situation, but Canada. Okay. Like, <laughs> it's, I think people are pretty nihilist and aware of what's going on. But ultimately, At what can point, you do? Yeah. Like, you can't yeah. leave. Um, and also, I think you do have that sense of like, I'm doing it for my crew members. Like I'm doing it for the people mm -hmm. that depend on me. I can't just like run. Um, yeah. Anyways. So the average crew survival rate was between two and three months. And oh, during that period That's of time, brutal. you'd be flying about 20 missions. So over two to three months, you're going to fly 20 missions. And that's the average after that point. It's probably That's not insane. gonna be together as a crew anymore. Andy, go home. <laughs> yeah, it's too late. We're in too deep now. <laughs> yeah, these missions would include attacks on military and civilian sites. Um, and in particular, the attacks on German cities were intensifying after October 1943. So more than a hundred crews were regularly sent to bomb cities like Frankfurt and Berlin. And in 1944, the number 419 began flying the Avro Lancasters, which were manufactured out of Ontario. So those are the planes cool. that they wind up flying. Um, they were flying different models before that, but I don't know. I, I don't know if that's particularly exciting for people. <laughs> if you're if you're someone an aircraft yeah. nut, uh, I apologize. <laughs> I was going to say someone is listening and going, "Wow." <laughs> yeah. There's, That's exciting. There's one guy who's typing out a comment right now. It's like, why didn't you talk about the whatever model of plane that they were flying beforehand? Um, yes. Um, also, and this is even a nerd Grace, calling you, out a nerd, so I'm sorry. And even though, yeah, Grace used that voice, we respect you. We see you. Please send us a direct message. Yeah, you are seen. You are heard. I apologize. Uh, sorry, not Sorry. <laughs> So in the aftermath of D-Day on June 6, 1944, the missions of the number 419 began to shift towards supporting the invasion forces. So mm. now there's like a goal. Like we've got men on the ground in France again, and we've got to protect them as much as possible. Um, right. So they were attacking railways that were feeding the German forces. So basically just trying to cut off the supply lines of the Germans as much as possible. Yeah, um, trying to make it difficult. Yeah. 
So on June 12th, six days after D-Day, the Moose men were called to the briefing room for that night's mission. And it would be the mission that changed Andy's life forever. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So the target was railways. I'm not ready. I'm not ready for it to go downhill yet. It's it, it's okay. We're in this together. Okay. If okay. if I was in the studio and we didn't need to social distance, I would like hold your hand through all of this. But oh, I would like that I, very much. I'm virtually holding your hand through all of this. <laughs> so the target was a set of railways in the marshalling yards at Cambrai, France, and this was Andy's crew's thirteenth operation. So okay. They're beating the odds. Yeah, they're they're no, above, they're not. well, they're not above average, but like you know, they're still alive. They're, they're going. They're they're trucking through. So at nineteen hundred hours, sixteen Lancaster aircrafts from the Moose Squadron were detailed to attack at a low level of just two thousand feet. Weather conditions were favorable, and takeoff was scheduled for twenty one thirty, and the target was expected to be reached at about twenty five minutes after midnight. Okay. So Andy's crew started to prep for their mission. Uh, They're waiting in the grass field. So the crew is composed. Our team today is Art de Brienne. So he is the pilot. Um, Navigator Bod Bodie. Air bomber Jack Friday. What a name. These are some names. I bet Jack Friday was either a total like nerd or he was really, really hot. Like it's one (laughs) or the other with a name like Jack Friday. Yeah, exactly. Uh, wireless operator Jim Kelly not the quarterback but uh, he's here too (laughs) flight engineer Roy Vickers rear gunner pilot Pat Brophy and then Andy at mid gunner so those are our boys that's our crew those are boys Andy was particularly close with rear gunner Pat Brophy and they sat in the grass together as they're waiting and Andy found a four leaf clover and he turned to Pat and said you should have it Pat Oh, Jesus. So we've got some symbolism going on. We've, it's their 13th mission. Unlucky number. We might number. call that foreshadowing. <laughs> we've got a four-leaf clover. <laughs> yeah. So the mission started 14 minutes late, taking off for Cambrai at 21.44. After an hour and 20 minutes in the air, the intercom crackled to life. Pilot Art de Brienne informed the crew that they were halfway there and it would be another 80 minutes before they reached their target. All right. Also, like, the wait would kill me the most, I think. Like, like the waiting? Yeah. yeah, you're, like, in the plane and you've got to wait, like, I guess, like, it would be almost three hours to reach yeah. the destination before you actually do anything. Like, I, that, I can't do that. I'm so bad at, like, that waiting Thing. well that just that suspense and that yeah unknowing ugh. yeah and like yeah, i know they're trained awful. for it to some extent but like two years ago he's just like a normal kid and now yeah. you're in like like the turret. suspense right now is killing me, so. <laughs> and that's the end of the episode stay tuned for part two <laughs> next no. week on minute women <laughs> i quit <laughs> i quit <laughs> So Andy replied to the intercom saying, thanks, no rush. It's like, that's funny to me. <laughs> it's like, they've got 80 minutes. And he's like, thanks, no rush. <laughs> so by 2315, bomber Jack Friday reports that he can see the enemy coast ahead. 
As the squadron approaches the French coast, the sky became illuminated with spotlights and the flak that was starting to fly towards the aircraft. So, like, that's what they're shooting at the planes. And I was going to say, for anyone who doesn't know, that's 11.15 p.m. So it's nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought I'd stick with the military thing. I like, also no, cool I'm really into it. It's like it's a military uh, mission, so there's military reports about it, which means you know like the oh, minute yeah. play by play of like what's happening. Yeah, like, that really is cool. cool. Much yeah. more detailed, easier Far for you to detailed. research. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you, Canadian Royal or Royal Canadian <laughs> Aircraft or Force. <laughs> you know who you are. Whatever you are. Shout out to you. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to the Moose Ben. Um, <laughs> So by 2335, Brophy was suddenly blinded by the light of a spotlight illuminating the aircraft from below. So like he's at the rear of the plane. So his turret actually like looks over the ground. And so he can like see the whole spotlight uh, trapping them. And then there was another spotlight and another spotlight. And so this is called coning. So the aircraft is being coned by three German spotlights which are tracking it through the sky so immediately Art executed a corkscrew maneuver to evade the beams and they managed to escape the lights but the crew was uncertain if they were like truly invisible again it's like okay they're not the spotlights aren't on them but we don't know if they can see us or not yeah yeah scary scary not fun not a good time It's like, all right, we're basically at a six-man crew because Linnea is crying in the fetal position on the floor. (laughs) We've lost our rear gunner. (laughs) I would, (laughs) yeah. It's an eight-man crew, and this is our, like, emotional release valve. It's like this one person who's just here to be, like, emotional about everything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So nevertheless, the crew continues to fly and they begin approaching the target um, with the coastal defenses behind them. So they've managed to like pass the first row of defenses. Um, The plane began descending to the target 2000 feet altitude, which was required for bomb runs. So like it is really low, but they need to be that low to accurately hit any targets. Okay. And Andy as the mid upper gunner had a full view of the night sky and was keeping watch for enemy fighters. So like part of his responsibility is he has like a full range of what the plane can see from above and he's trying to make sure there's no um, other planes coming to attack them. Sounds like a terrifying job. Okay. Yeah. It was Pat, Pat Brophy, however, who spotted the JU-88 that was approaching them from from the rear. So that's a German plane. And he warned over the intercom at five minutes after midnight, bogey stern, six o'clock. So that's his call to the crew. Art again corkscrewed to evade the night fighter, but the JU-88 reappeared below them. He's coming under us, called Pat over the intercom. The enemy plane fired upwards at the Lancaster, and it was hit three times with 20 millimeter shells. Uh, the no. port engine was destroyed, the fuel tank was on fire, and a fire broke out inside the rear fuselage, and the plane was going and down. And this is like this is like the meme, you know, when the dude's like sitting at his kitchen table and everything's on fire. Yeah. Yes, this dog. Is fine. And the dog's like, this is fine, this everything is fine. Is fine. Like, like <laughs> if this is just your job, like, it makes me understand why there's so much, like, black comedy about being particularly a soldier <laughs> in the Second World War. 
Like right? I think of all of the like movies and stuff. And well, books. because I have to think as well. Like at this point, is that the consensus? Like, oh yeah, we've been hit like however many times, but like everything's fine, like relatively. <laughs> so these guys are like, oh no, this place going down. Okay, they're not fine. They're not okay, fine. Good to know. They're not fine. Good to know. I feel better. <laughs> they're aware. <laughs> So uh, pilot Art de Brienne ordered his crew to bail out at 13 minutes after midnight. Okay. And exiting the plane devolved immediately into chaos, which like... Of course. So we're going to, like, obviously all of this is tragic, and I am not laughing at, like, the circumstances that are taking place. But again, like, this would make such a good black comedy, like, everything that takes place. It's just, like, there's so much foreshadowing. Yeah, the potential for satirical comedy yeah. with World War II is really high. You have a guy named Jack Friday in your crew. Yeah. Like, you can't make that up. No. Hence the movie Jojo Rabbit having such success. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. Like, this, this story anyway, would just fit know, that so well, I think. Yes, just know that we might be laughing. But not but it's at them. at the circumstance. Yeah. It's like, as opposed to the actual people. Yeah, it's like, either you laugh or you cry. So Yeah. So let's laugh. Let's, let's laugh and not cry. So at the front of the Lancaster, Jack Friday attempted to open the forward hatch, but the high winds thrusted the hatch into his head and knocked him out. <laughs> it's just like... Mm-hmm. Excellent start. First dude in line. Out cold. <laughs> so Roy Vigors came up behind Jack and managed to push him out of the escape hatch and deploy his chute. So... Uh, oh Jack shit! We're in the air. We're not landed. No, 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 no! Like, oh, we are exiting God. the aircraft. We are burning. We are going down. Oh, for God's sake! Okay, so he knocked himself out. Try- okay, yeah. All right, all right. I'm with you. I'm following. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he manages to like get Jack out safely and get himself out safely. So, okay. good job, Roy. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> Bob jumped from the plane as Art wrestled to keep the plane from spiraling into a dive. So, like, the pilot can't get out until everyone else is out. Otherwise, like, the plane is just going to, like, lose control completely. Um, Jim also managed to bail out. And then finally, Art bailed out as well, unbeknownst to him, of the truly harrowing events that were taking place at the rear of the plane. So... Where's Andy? This is the thing. Art thinks everybody's out. But they're oh, not. Oh my God. So, no. <laughs> Pat's line to the intercom was cut during the shelling. So, like, Pat okay. can't hear the intercom and he can't report back to the pilot anymore. He can't communicate with anybody. All right. Um, but he sees the signal light go off that says you need to bail out. And so he's trying to bail out, but he realizes that his turret is jammed. So he can't turn his turret more than a few inches. Okay, what's his turret? So like that's like his uh, his like chair essentially, like what oh, okay. he's sitting in, okay. where his gun would be. Um, he, if you think uh, like Star Wars, Millennium Falcon, when they're in like yeah, yeah. fights, it's basically that. He, but he can't get I'm out. Falling. The flames from the fuselage were creeping closer and closer, and Pat is trying everything to get out. He attempts to hand crank his turret open. But the crank snaps. So like oh, gosh. Andy, meanwhile, manages to get out of his turret and he's reaching the rear door to bail out. 
but at the last minute, he glances over and notices that Pat oh, is stuck. Oh, and he notices Pat's there. Oh, His buddy. gosh. Okay. So oh, no. without hesitation. And they're all close. They're all part of this Moose Brothers club. I, I don't know. It's... <laughs> it's so... <sighs> okay. So let's just... Yeah. Let's do this together. Without hesitation, okay. he crawled through the burning hydraulic f- fluid to Pat. And uh, at this point, okay. Andy's suit and parachute are soaked in fluid and on fire. So, like, oh because God. he has to, like, crawl through this, he's on fire, too. But oh Andy manages to find the fire axe, and he tries to pry Pat's door open. Meanwhile, Pat is screaming. Whilst on fire? While Andy is on fire, he's, like, trying okay. to open the door. And he, Pat okay. is screaming at him and saying, like, don't try. Go back. I'm done for just like get out of the plane because like i have to imagine the feeling of like oh my god if we both die because like i got stuck like you know what i mean like i'm not okay the viewers should know that (laughs) i'm not coping well right now pat knew the door wasn't gonna budge like he just knew it wasn't worth trying and so eventually andy reluctantly crawls toward the door and he managed to turn back to his friend one last time, salutes, oh. and says, good night, sir, as the pair's tongue and cheek nightly sign off to each other. So they would, like, jokingly say, good night, sir, whenever they would say goodbye to each other. And then he bails out of the plane. <laughs> okay. All right. Stuffing the emotions back where they belong, deep down inside, not for the rest of the world. Okay, continue. I'm ready. So Andy's descent to the earth was rapid the burnt parachute and shroud lines could not hold andy's weight and the impact on the earth was heavy so it's a really rough landing french farmers spotted him falling from the sky and stated that it looked like a burning candle in the night so like they can see this like fireball falling okay that sounds horrific all right farmers approached him and he was alive though severely burned um and they had no choice but to take him to a german field hospital where in the following hours he would succumb to his injuries and andy minarski died on june 13th 1944 and was buried in a nearby cemetery he was 27 andy died andy died grace so The four crewmen who managed to escape the plane all survived. Bob, Jim, and Art were all hidden by the French underground. And shortly after the crash, they were returned to England. Roy and Jack landed safely, though Jack is still unconscious because he hit himself with a door. (laughs) Um, And they were captured by German forces. Uh, They became prisoners of war until American troops uh, liberated their camp. So they survived as well. But... How do we know the story of Andy then? Who's the only person who witnessed it? Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. That guy lived. So Pat Brophy, after Andy left the plane, was all alone in the burning aircraft that was careening towards the earth. He started reciting Hail Mary full of grace over and over again like a good Catholic. As the Lancaster Like a good Catholic boy. Catholic boy. Um From his window, he could see trees and other distinguishing features of the ground, and he felt when the aircraft started to break up as it was hitting the tree line. And then he could feel that he was still trapped in his turret, but now he was flying in a different direction 
than the rest of the aircraft. So like his turret becomes detached from the rest of the plane. Oh my gosh. Eventually his turret comes to sit on the ground. And Can he- you imagine like the world's worst amusement park ride? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, this would be fun in other contexts. <laughs> right? It's like, and now your seat detaches and you are free. <laughs> so once once the turret is sitting on the ground, he feels the earth shake twice as the bombs that the Lancaster was carrying explode. So like, oh it's gosh. a good thing that he becomes separated because the bombs that were on the plane like explode right. and detonate, obviously. And then he fell unconscious. So when Pat woke up, he took stock of his body and somehow he had managed to avoid any major injuries. So he's like, got no broken limbs or anything. Um, He was lying in a small ditch with no water. The mission was supposed to have been a quick run. So he didn't like bring anything with him. So he's basically like in the wild with nothing at this point. Um, All he had on him was his revolver and his toothbrush. Oh, well, toothbrush. Don't know why. Hey, hi, Jean. (laughs) Hi, Jean. (laughs) Important. (laughs) So the crash had broken the turret enough for him to, like, break it apart and escape the turret. And so he leaves the turret. He takes account of his surroundings. He takes his helmet off. He, in retrospect, remembers, like, when I took my helmet off, all of my hair stayed in the helmet like it singed Ugh. off but yeah at the time he was like didn't seem like a big issue so I just <laughs> left the helmet behind <laughs> no hair not a big deal yeah, it's like I've got bigger fish to fry <laughs> <laughs> um, in the distance Pat saw the lights of a small village so he slowly starts making his way towards it and he's moving very carefully because it was nearing daylight and he's in an active war zone right now there could be tripwires and bombs and God knows, who knows what who you're coming for him. Upon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he reached the village around, he thinks, like six in the morning, but he's not sure. Um, yeah. And he's like weaving his way through the narrow streets. Uh, he described all of the homes as being built very close together. <laughs> Okay, just you're just up. Like, wow. <laughs> I love that. I love that you're like, you've just survived the most harrowing plane crash ever described. And you're like, the architecture is really interesting here. <laughs> oh, my God. Hmm. I should just take a moment and write this down. <laughs> yeah. So from around the corner, he hears the approaching steps of what sounds like marching soldiers. And so he like steps back into one of the sunken doorways of the houses. He draws his revolver. But then suddenly the door opens and the strong arms of a man wrap around his neck, covering his mouth and yank him into the house. Um, oh, God. The man spoke English and told him oh, to be okay. quiet. Good sign. Yeah. Good, good. These are good signs. Good signs. And he informed him that he was a member of the French resistance, the French underground. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy right now. The this right is the doorway first good to thing pick. I've heard <laughs> yeah. in, like, in like an hour. Yeah. This is the best news. <laughs> So Pat spent his days hiding, and he said that it was really boring and really slow. Um, essentially, the man is like, we're going to save you, but we need, like, the right time to, like, boring get you out of Boring and slow? Here. I'd be like, thank God I'm alive. And he's just thank like, oh, God yeah, they're boring bored. and slow. 
Like, yeah, right? It's what more happening. do you want? Do you want to fly out of a freaking plane again after you watch your friend burn to death trying to save you? My yeah. God. Ungrateful. <laughs> Come on, Pat. So he became more acquainted with the man who had saved him. Um, and he like went over with him what the mission was and, and how it kind of like seemingly ended in a nightmare. Like, I do think it's good that he has someone he could talk to about it in the immediate mm-hmm. aftermath. <laughs> That's, That's good. That's probably the best thing. And, you know. And he doesn't know I what's happened like, to anybody. Like, he doesn't know right? Andy's and I feel dead. Like he that's, doesn't know any what happened to his friends at all. Yeah, and that's a, a big thing about World War One and World War Two and war currently mm-hmm. is that people come back and, you know, you have PTSD because you come back and you try to ignore it and not talk about it. I feel like he had just, like, this very lucky moment that he was there and had the time to kind of talk about it yeah definitely and yeah like just being able yeah just be like you said like just being able to like talk about it in the immediate aftermath has to be helpful at least to just process it and like be like okay this is what happened so he became acquainted with how the underground worked and he was told there there was a plan in motion to get him back to england so the man that saved pat took him along the first leg of the journey so by night him and this guy are like walking outside <laughs> this big man <laughs> i imagine they don't describe him really other than his strong arms but I, so i'm just imagining this like hagrid-esque man <laughs> it's hagrid. walking with i was this little harry potter like soldier <laughs> i was thinking uh who's the villain in bell beauty and the beast what's what's his name oh gaston, gaston. <laughs> yeah or Vin Diesel. Maybe more like a Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Big arms. So eventually they meet up with another man. And this guy is going to take Pat on the second leg of the journey. And then they meet up with a third guy who takes him on the third leg of the journey. So essentially he's like moving on through a chain of safe houses to like eventually wow. reach the coast. Okay. And still, so they're not in France though right now, or are they in France? So they're in France, yeah. Okay. Um, and all the while they're sleeping during the day and then walking at night. So walking a lot night. of walking. Okay. He said he was unable to like figure out the names of the guys who helped him. But I imagine there was probably also a policy of like not telling them your real name. That's totally yeah. my own assumptions, but it's probably for security purposes that you don't tell people your name. Yeah. So Pat is going along and then eventually he like smells salt water and he's like, oh, Uh, we're at the coast. We're like getting getting near the end. So they stayed on the beach basically all through the day, all through a good chunk of the night because they don't want to be spotted. Mm -hmm. And this would be like a hot spot for combat at this point, I imagine. Yeah. And then eventually they start walking towards the water's edge. And he said it seemed like forever, but eventually he sees like he can make out a boat coming towards him. Okay. Um, so Pat is now this on is the boat. This is so epic. I know. This is this is a movie. I know. I felt like I was like, I know this is the Andrew Monarski Heritage Minute, but like, how do you not talk about this dude's story? This is all about Pat. This is like Pat is our like awesome side character out of all of this. Pat's the narrator. Yeah, exactly. He's like yeah. It's his perspective, really, on all of the events that's taking place. Pat's like, oh, that guy in The Great Gatsby. Yeah. What's his... He's Tom? not Gatsby. Todd? 
He's, yeah, the author guy. Yeah. <laughs> the author guy. Nick. Nick. Okay. Thanks. So Pat, he's like on the boat now. Um, eventually he meets up with a second larger boat that took him all the way back to England. And essentially wow. an Englishman guided him to the drop-off point and like left him and was like, all right, bye. You're home. You're in England. <laughs> You're in England. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, Can you imagine? Yeah. They drop him off close to his base though. So at least it's like a nice drop-off. <laughs> Okay, that's good. Um, so back at home base, Pat immediately went to the nearby pub um, where he and his buddies him. had a designated table. So like, rather than going back to like report, you're like, I got, I need a drink. <laughs> I, I would too. Totally fair. Uh, totally respect it. Yeah. Um, Are they there? Are they there? Are so at the fair? table alone was no. Pilot. Art de Brienne. No. So the pilot's there. Not in a bad way. It's just like he happens to be the only one there at the time. I know. He made it. <laughs> he made he's it. there. Okay. All right. So he's Stuffing there. The emotions aside. He's sipping on beer. Uh, and Art looks up and he sees Pat and he's like, it's like he's seen a ghost. Like everyone thinks Pat's yeah. dead. And then. For sure. It, like everyone thought for sure Pat was dead. Yeah. And in shock, he's like, get out of here. Go away. Like, who are you? Like. Also, he doesn't have hair anymore. So, like, he said, like, <laughs> it took some convincing to be like, no, it's maybe really Pat me. had like a maybe Pat had like a huge like curly bushel of hair. He did. Like, maybe Pat had like a huge fro, and now it's gone. Yeah, he was like, I had really long black curly hair, and so yeah, it was okay, like, so it would be confusing, which is like a little strange for a military guy, but I don't know. Maybe this mission took place just before their, his like next haircut. <laughs> Anyways. So eventually Pat manages to like calm him down and be like, no, it's, it's really me. I'm back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and do I have a story for you? And boy, do I have a story to tell you. And so they sat together and Pat relayed the story of how he survived. And also the story of Andy, because no one knows what Andy did other than Pat. Wow. So Pat, thankfully, was sent for rest for two months in Scotland. Uh, so he got to like take a leave for two months um, and then Thank he gosh. returned to active duty. Like imagine having wow. to get back up in a plane after that. Oh my God. It's like, ugh. anyways. Sounds awful. So and what year are we at right now? How much time's left in the war? So this would have been, um, I guess, a few weeks after D-Day. So okay. we're like, we've got about a year left before victory in, right. okay. in Europe. Um, right. So in late 1945, after hearing Pat's story, uh, Art de Brienne started the process of gaining recognition for Andy's uh, selfless and extraordinary act, um, first by inquiring about the location of his grave so it could be relocated to a Canadian military cemetery. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's actually like the pilot who takes on. And I think part of that is like he would have been the highest ranking officer. So yeah, it's he it's like his responsibility. Yeah. So they faced some initial resistance, but eventually okay. the recommendation worked its way up the command structure of the RCAF and the RAF. And on the 11th of October, 1946, a Victoria Cross was posthumously awarded for valor of the highest order oh, wow. to Andrew Charles Minarski. Um, oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. So I think he's one of the few Canadians who receives a Victoria Cross during... That's the first incredible. world or second world war 
Pat wrote a letter to Andy's mother when the Victoria Cross was given, and like they have a yeah. copy of that letter. Um, oh, that's so. And he he starts it by saying, um, "My dear Mrs. Minarski, it is with a feeling of pride and humility that I write this letter to you. Pride that Andy's heroism has been at last recognized with his award of the Victoria Cross. Humility because he's dead now, and I am alive, whereas it should be the other way around." that is so sad (laughs) it's so sad so pat goes on to serve in the korea war as well so he remained like an active um member of the air force for the rest of his life though eventually he moves more into like um work from canada rather than active duty in foreign countries um okay Andy has been recognized by so many people like his, especially in like Manitoba, there's like schools named after of him. Course, there's yeah. like, uh, like hundreds well, of thank statues God. All they and had plaques. Were, all they had were schools named after <laughs> dead white American dudes. <laughs> <laughs> now we have someone a little more relevant to name the schools after. <laughs> Quick, name all the schools after him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like everyone get rid of these. Um... <laughs> He's also featured in Canada's Valiant Memorial alongside Laura Secord and Governor Frontenac. So, would you look, would at, you that? look at that? I feel like every Heritage Minute hero is going to wind up uh, in that memorial. Yeah. But yeah, that's the story of Andy Minarski and his incredibly well, what about the brave other guys act. though um i couldn't really find a whole lot about what they went on to do okay. after the war the, if this were a movie this would be the post credits where they're like jack right. friday eventually woke up and went on to do something <laughs> else <laughs> jim kelly stopped, went on to be a quarterback for the out. buffalo bills he lost four super bowls <laughs> exactly uh but yeah i i, I With, know like what the Pat sweet went on to soft do, music playing <laughs> yeah and yeah. the like black screen as like before the credits roll exactly yeah. like white times new romans font over a black exactly yeah but the it's actually really interesting we should watch it i think at some point but there was like an art house film that was made about andy and it's like oh, wow. it's it's all about it's this like dramatization of his descent to the earth and like it seems really oh cool. I couldn't tell. I think it might be in Polish, uh, but okay. it was made in Canada. It seems really interesting. It's only like twelve minutes long, so we would like. Okay, we can watch. We that. should watch that at some point. But um, we should watch that. Yeah, that's that's Andy, who's like. I think it's an interesting story because it's like an ordinary guy who did like this absolutely incredible thing, and yeah, you can kind of see a build up to it of like he'd always been responsible for other people. For like a huge chunk of his life. And Ugh. Yeah. Sweet, sweet yeah. Andy. Sweet, sweet Andy. Yeah. And Pat's incredible story. Sad. I do feel like it's oh, like Pat's unreal. the Heritage Minute is like them meeting up at the bar beforehand and uh it's them like chatting, like Pat and um Andy. Okay. And then their CEO comes in and is like, uh, boys, get ready. You have a mission tonight. And they like turn to each other and they're like, Good night, sir. 
and then they like go off yeah. for their mission and then it cuts to them in the plane on fire like trying to get out and then it's Andy like saying goodbye to Pat and like going good night sir and like bailing out of the plane Ugh. um but that's really it and not to say like that isn't an incredible story and obviously Andy is worth the recognition that he's received but Pat's story mm-hmm. is also so incredible well Pat's account is the story yeah you know yeah I mean? So it's, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, like if Pat hadn't survived the crash, we would never know what Andy did. Right. And then you've got to think like, oh my gosh, how many stories are like that? Like, yeah, how many stories exist where yeah. you just don't have witnesses to it? Like, yeah. And I think... Especially in war. Yeah, when I was researching, I think that was the reason there was resistance to it, was like there's only one official account of it. Right. And it's like his best friend. Yeah. But, I mean, come on. It's like so good. Yeah. 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 Anyways, I loved that. A little bit of it a shorter one sad. today, but yeah. But it was no, it was good. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Minute Women podcast. Uh, just a quick reminder that if you're not already following us, go follow us on our Instagram, Minute Women Podcast, and on Twitter at the Minute Women. And on Facebook at Minute Women Podcast as well. And we also have a really fancy, beautiful website, which is uh, www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. So go check us out there. Yeah. And if you want to rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, we're on all major podcast platforms. Reviews on iTunes are especially good for us. So please leave us a five-star review and let us know what you think. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.